Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to EM Guidewire. I'm Nikki Richardson. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Domestic violence is a serious and challenging public health problem. Approximately one in three women and one in 10 men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Nationally, domestic violence costs the healthcare system over $8 billion. To further delve into our role as medical providers when treating victims of domestic violence, this week we're joined by our CMC experts on this topic, Dr. Dragu and Dr. Salzman. Dr. Dragu and Dr. Salzman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Nikki. Today, we're gonna be talking about non-fatal strangulation. Dr. Salzman, why is this topic so important for us to discuss as medical providers? Well, Nikki, non-fatal strangulation is an incredibly important topic for all of us to understand. Victims of strangulation are 750% more likely to become a homicide victim after a single event compared to abuse controls. And not only are these men incredibly dangerous to the women they abuse, but they are also incredibly dangerous to police officers and society as a whole. Every year in the United States, 40 to 60% of known cop killers have a history of strangling women. Approximately 90% of adult mass casualty shooting perpetrators have a history of domestic violence with a report of strangulation. When we boil it down, Nikki, domestic violence is all about power and control. And manual strangulation is the ultimate form of that power and control. By the time a man puts his hands around the neck of his partner, he is telling them that he is willing and perfectly able to kill them. Those are truly striking statistics. Where are we getting the majority of this data from? Overall, the research on strangulation is not the most robust, which is something we are actively trying to combat here at CMC. Currently, a lot of our research comes from the Strack et al. group out of the San Diego City Attorney's Office. In the late 90s and early 2000s, their first publication came out, which looked at a review of 300 cases that were presented to their office for prosecution. From these cases, we learned that 99% of these perpetrators are male, 97% of the victims were manually strangled, and not surprisingly, 89% had a history of domestic violence. Sadly, 41% of the time, there was a child that witnessed the event, and most surprisingly, only 5% of these victims sought medical attention, and this statistic has been replicated in subsequent studies. Okay, so I hear the terms strangulation and choking thrown around a lot, but what are we actually talking about here? That's a great question, Nikki. The medical definition of strangulation is a form of asphyxiation caused by closing of the blood vessels and or air passages of the neck as a result of external pressure applied to the neck. Okay, so strangulation is not choking, but it's important to remember that the medical terminology and the terminology which our patients use often is not the same. We'll often hear our patients say that they were choked or choked out when they're actually referring to being strangled. Yes, that's so important to understand. And there are also many different forms of strangulation. And as I already mentioned, manual strangulation is by far the most common and one that we'll see frequently in the emergency department. But you can see ligatures used from time to time and very rarely you might see a hanging related to domestic violence. I cannot even begin to imagine what these victims go through during such an intimate and primal attack. Well, through the same case series, the investigators were actually able to talk to these victims who had been strangled to the point of unconsciousness or near unconsciousness, and we found that they went through a fairly predictable sequence of emotions and thoughts. First, these victims describe the feeling of denial. They often describe having almost an out-of-body experience and not truly believing or understanding what's happening to them. But 
This is followed pretty quickly by the realization phase where they understand that they are being strangled and eventually move on to the primal, what we consider fight or flight phase, where they begin to fight for their lives. And this really comes into play when we think about injuries that we'll see because they are fighting for their lives. They'll often have self-inflicted wounds on their neck. And lastly, once these victims are greatly overpowered by someone who is much larger than them, they follow this by the resignation phase where they describe this feeling where they're truly going to die. They'll often describe having thoughts of their family and especially who will take care of their children when they're gone. And how quickly can this sort of attack happen? How quickly can these victims be brought to the brink of unconsciousness? Well, with constant pressure applied to the carotid arteries, a victim can actually be rendered unconscious in as little as 6.8 seconds. This will be followed by an anoxic seizure in 14 seconds and loss of control of bowel or bladder in as short as 15 to 30 seconds. And death and complete cessation of respiratory efforts can occur in as little as one to two minutes. That truly sounds like no time at all. I mean, I would think that for these injuries to occur that quickly, there would have to be a significant amount of pressure applied to the neck to cause death in only one to two minutes. Well, when we talk about occlusion of neck structures, there are three main structures that we have to consider. The jugular veins, carotid arteries, and the trachea. It actually takes only four pounds per square inch of pressure to occlude the jugular veins, 11 to occlude the carotid arteries, and 34 to occlude the trachea. But if you're anything like me, I had no idea what that meant realistically. And to put things into perspective, it takes six pounds per square inch of pressure to pull a handgun trigger and 20 to open a soda can. In fact, an adult male handshake is 80 to 100 pounds per square inch of pressure. So you're saying that it takes less pressure to occlude the carotid arteries than it does to open a soda can. Exactly. And this really comes into play, again, when we talk about visible signs of injury or really lack of visible signs of injury on physical exam. Obviously, you're not going to have any marks on your hands from opening a soda can. And similarly, many of these women will present with no visible signs of injury despite having a significant strangulation event. So if we can't rely on physical exam to show us a victim has been strangled, what can we look for in their history to indicate a significant manual strangulation event? Well, these victims can present with a myriad of symptoms. They might present complaining of dizziness, vision and hearing changes, voice changes, difficulty swallowing or speaking, shortness of breath throat soreness, and most commonly, they'll complain of neck pain. They can also have long-term consequences similar to a lot of victims of domestic violence, which might include miscarriages, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. And unfortunately, while many of these victims are reluctant to report or seek medical attention, when they do, they typically try to downplay the attack. And just because your victim says she doesn't remember does not mean that she's trying to be evasive. She really doesn't remember. Yes, Danielle, and that's very important to remember as the hippocampus, which is the portion of the brain that's responsible for memory formation, is also the area of the brain that's most sensitive to hypoxia. So during manual strangulation, lack of blood flow to the hippocampus means no new memories are formed. So just because a woman doesn't remember all the details surrounding the attack, this does not mean that she is fabricating the event or that a significant strangulation event did not occur. Now that we know a little bit more about what to look for in our history of this event, what are we looking for in our physical exam? Well, that's the biggest problem. There is a paucity of evidence surrounding the living survivors of strangulation. Currently, most of what we do is extrapolated from the post-mortem literature or from case reports and case series to help us treat these patients. So what do we know from the research that we do have? So Dr. Salzman pointed out earlier, from the largest body of literature done in the 90s, we know that only 50% of these victims have signs of visible injuries. And another 35% had injuries that were too minor to photograph and only 15% had photographs of injuries that were sufficient to be used in the court of law for prosecution. 
I think this is a really important point to remember as emergency medicine providers, because it means that when a patient presents to the ED with a history of strangulation, just because she does not have external exam findings, this does not mean that she did not experience a serious strangulation event. And more importantly, the lack of external exam findings does not mean that the patient does not have internal injuries. That's correct, Nikki. In fact, even more shocking, of all patients that are found in homicide cases of strangulation, 40% of them will not have external exam findings. So when these patients do have external exam findings, what injury patterns do we expect to see? Great question. The injury pattern we see is determined by a number of factors. This includes the amount of pressure that is applied. So as Dr. Salzman talked about earlier, as you escalate the amount of pressure applied, you start occluding the venous structures, then the arterial structures, and then the airway itself. The duration of pressure applied is also important. As you occlude the vasculature, the longer you do it, the more likely you are to have an anoxic brain injury. The surface area which the pressure is applied over, the anatomic location, and the patient's previous medical conditions. For example, if you have a patient that is anticoagulated, you're more likely to see extensive bruising. Some of the bruising you may see are fingertip bruising, most commonly the thumb because the thumb is the strongest digit. You might also see self-defensive wounds from fingernail marks as the patient is trying to pry the hands of the perpetrator off of her. You also might see bruising behind the ears, above the clavicles, and near the sternum. And this is because the sternocleidomastoid muscle inserts behind the ears at the mastoid, at the clavicle, and at the sternum. And as some pressure is applied over the muscle belly, you rip it from these insertion sites. In the case of strangulation with a ligature, the anterior and posterior markings will occur on the same plane, which is different from a hanging, where the anterior markings will be lower and the posterior markings will be higher as the patient is suspended. So if we do see external injuries, how should we be documenting them in our medical record? Well, documentation is so important in these cases. It's important to document only what you see without making assumptions about the etiology of the injuries. For example, fingertip bruising should be described as circular or oval appearing bruising. Fingernail marks should be described as crinolivier or crescent abrasions. If it's possible to include photographs in your medical documentation, that should be done whenever possible as well with a measuring device to include for scale. Another very common physical exam finding is petechiae. In fact, the literature on homicidal asphyxiation shows that almost 80% of patients that die from asphyxiation have petechiae. When we look at non-fatal strangulations, there was recently a 10-year literature review published by Shields et al. in 2010, which showed that petechiae were present in 22% of non-fatal manual strangulation cases. As the venous structures are compressed and occluded, vascular congestion occurs, leading to rupture of the venules and the capillaries, which causes petechial hemorrhage. Identifying petechial hemorrhage requires a very careful and dedicated physical exam. The upper and lower eyelids must be averted to identify subconjunctival and conjunctival petechiae. The oropharynx must also be examined to identify petechiae of the uvula, sublingual area, and soft palate. And everting the upper and lower lips is also important as petechiae and oral lacerations may be found here. The entire scalp can also exhibit petechiae, and therefore careful parting of the hair to examine the scalp is important. That was a really great overview of the external injuries to look for. Now, what about internal injuries? What are some of the internal injuries that we are worried about seeing in these patients? One of the most devastating is carotid artery dissection. 
It is hypothesized that the carotid arteries are compressed against the transverse processes of the vertebra and the patient creates shearing forces as he or she struggles, which then causes carotid artery dissection. This can be present with focal neurological symptoms, carotid brewery, expanding hematoma, respiratory distress, but more likely these patients are initially completely asymptomatic and then present months out from the initial injury with a stroke. In fact, carotid artery dissection is responsible for 20% of cerebral vascular accidents in patients less than 45 years of age. Anoxic brain injury can also occur even without evidence of internal damage to the vasculature. And all that is so important to keep in mind when you have a patient that presents to you with no external exam findings, but a history concerning for a serious manual strangulation event. The most common internal injury to see in both fatal and non-fatal strangulation is hyoid or laryngotracheal fracture. The hyoid bone is a free-floating bone in the anterior portion of the neck at approximately the C3, C4 level, which is suspended to the base of the tongue by a group of muscles and then connected inferiorly to the larynx. Its function is to help elevate the tongue for swallowing. This anatomy is important to remember, as patients with a hyoid bone fracture will present with dysphagia, odynophagia, pain on rotation of the neck, anterior neck tenderness, and swelling. With laryngeal injuries, vocal changes such as dysphonia, aphonia, respiratory distress, neck swelling, subcutaneous emphysema, and neck crepitus can occur. And keep in mind that the thyroid gland is also an anterior neck structure. Compression of the thyroid gland with significant enough force can lead to injury, and there's even been case reports of thyroid storm. When we look at cervical spine injuries, these are exceedingly rare. However, if the victim has a history of manually being picked up by her neck and thrown against the wall, this is when you'll have cervical spinal injuries. These could include anterior and posterior ligamentous injuries, spinous process fractures, vertebral body fractures with dislocation, epidural hematomas, and even spinal cord injuries themselves. Unfortunately, despite these grave injuries which can occur, we currently don't have a ton of evidence to turn to to give us guidance on how and when to image these patients to identify these potentially life-threatening injuries. What is your personal philosophy when it comes to obtaining imaging on these patients? Well, Nikki, while we don't have a ton of research on this topic, we do have expert recommendations from the Training Institute on Strangulation and Prevention who have developed a guideline for the workup and management of these patients when they present to the emergency department. Based on their algorithm, if your patient has a concerning history, any symptoms, or any external exam findings, the patient should undergo imaging with CT angio of the neck. If the patient has any neurological findings, they should also have a non-con CT of the head followed by an MRI of the brain. And while CT angio is the gold standard initial imaging of choice, remember that this test can miss soft tissue edema. So if a patient complains of difficulty breathing despite having negative CT imaging, that patient warrants admission for observation for airway compromise. When you do find injuries, it's important to get your consultants involved. If you find an airway fracture, you should consult ENT. If you find a vascular injury, such as a carotid artery dissection, you could consult the vascular surgeon. Remember that this is a trauma-induced injury. So at any point, if your facility or consultants do not feel comfortable taking care of this patient, you should transfer the patient to your local trauma center. Thank you, Dr. Salzman and Dr. Dregu, for this incredibly enlightening discussion. We hope that this helps to provide some insight and guidance to assist you in caring for these incredibly vulnerable patients. In summary, strangulation victims are a very high-risk patient population, and it is important for both the provider and the patient to understand the significant risk. Manual strangulation is the ultimate form of control for domestic violence perpetrators. When these patients are identified, you should involve your social worker or other similar resources early on to assist with safety planning should these patients be discharged. 
In terms of the physical exam findings, remember that a lack of external exam findings does not mean a lack of a significant strangulation event. Your history is key here. You must be vigilant in both your history and physical exam to identify patients at risk for internal damage and have a very low threshold to obtain further imaging should you suspect an internal injury, as these injuries can be devastating. Thank you all for tuning in. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out. Scratch that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's gone. Third time's a charm. Scratch that, Fox. <laughs> 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 <laughs>